0: Mighty Lord and Everlasting Father, we thank you that you are the God who communicates to us through your word, your will, desire, and intentions for our life. We thank you, O God, that you have given us your word, that you have given us your spirit, that indwelling us in the effects and power of your spirit might aid us in understanding and seeing and hearing the word preached and read We ask, O Lord, that you would help not only the preaching of it, but also the hearing of it, that it might strengthen our soul, that we might be resolved to obey you in all things. And we ask that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly, that our focus might be upon God, might be upon him, and that we would be resolved to be obedient to you according to your law, your statutes, and your commandments. We ask for the Spirit's help in these things, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. The the sermon today is actually four hours. So, instead of giving you one four-hour sermon, we're going to divide this particular section of biblical reformation as we've been continually talking about it. We're actually in part six. We're dealing with the family. And in dealing with the family, we're going to talk about family reformation and the importance of the family. And then we're going to talk about the husband and the wife and the children. So instead of having a four-hour sermon that's in and of itself one sermon, we're just going to break it apart and we're going to deal with four shorter aspects, which, are probably be, which will probably be a little bit shorter than we regularly work together, but To capture some of these ideas, I thought that that would be most prudent. So, turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. And we're going to read in chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. This will give us context. And we're going to focus in on verse 15. 14 and 15, we're going to really deal with those verses rather than every verse overall in the chapter, but I want to read all of it so that we get the context. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau to Esau I gave the mountains of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. So they cried out to the Lord, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time, and I brought you into the land of the Amorites, who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Baar, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. Mm-hmm. Then you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. The men of Jericho fought against you, also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build, and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites, who dwelt in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. The context here is a theologically rich chapter that deals with what we are going to call a covenant renewal. And Joshua addresses all the people. He doesn't just call the leaders. He calls everybody. The leaders, the officers, the judges, all of the people, all of the tribes, everyone. And he renews the covenant. This is very reminiscent of what Josiah will do as we look to see him standing before the temple and making a covenant with the people. So Joshua had done this previously with the people at Shechem. This is Joshua's farewell speech, or maybe his last sermon, so to speak. Chapter 23 explained obedience to the book of the law, that they were supposed to be obedient. And here, Joshua is prompting them to be obedient. So in Shechem place where Jacob, as we'll uh, be reminded of, made covenant with God, prompted the Israelites to renew this covenant with them. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 25, it says, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Now, it's interesting the way that the whole chapter is set up, because it's set up just like the old covenants, of the day. There was a preamble that introduced the king. We're talking about who the king was and that's in verse 2. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And then there's some antecedent history describing previous relationships between God and the people. He explained what he did with Abraham. He explained what he did with Isaac. He explained what he did with Jacob. He explained what he did with Moses in delivering them from Egypt. He gave them a history That's why he says in in verse 2, he continues and says, your fathers, and begins to explain all of these things. And then there's a basic stipulation governing the future relationships that they're going to have with God in verse 14 and 16 and 21, and talking about, now therefore fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers serve on the other side of the river, in Egypt, serve the Lord. And then there's also blessings and curses. In verses 19 and 20, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And then, there's an invocation of a witness. The God is witness. The gods themselves would have regularly been witnesses against those who are entering into covenants in the day. So Joshua says to them, These things are witnesses against you. And then they repeat in verse 22, And they said, We are witnesses. So all of these things, this setup, this preamble, this history, these stipulations, blessings and curses, and then the witness, is all based on how a covenant is set up and how it works. And there are key elements that Joshua uses to address the people in God's salvation history. He recounts all of the great things that God had done for them up until this point. And there are two central promises that are seen to be fulfilled Though the covenant itself is not fulfilled, they're even renewing the covenant at this point. But one of those promises is that the presence of God is going to direct the patriarchs. And that's what he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But also, there is the gift of having a large family, as God promises the fathers. And that continues. Moses and Aaron are mentioned. Moses representing the law or the word of God and Aaron representing the priesthood and sacrifice. God's military victories are numbered, all the things that he did in Jericho and with Egypt. They even mentioned Balaam and his treachery when Balak wanted Balaam to come and curse the Israelites and instead God turned it for a blessing. Really... If you look at the chapter, it's God did this, and God did this, and God did this. Man really has nothing to do, and has done nothing, and God has acted for Israel's blessing. Israel's entire identity of who they are is a result of divine decree, not human action or human power. It's all because of what God did. Thus, he wants them to enter into a covenant and renew the covenant and be reminded... That this is what's going on. Very much like the Lord says to his people with the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. The covenant in which I did. The great work in which I worked. So here, man has really done nothing. And God has acted for Israel's blessings. And it's because of God's action that they're blessed. So, in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord. And serve him, and I think this is kind of interesting, in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, serve the Lord. The word sincerity is completely, in the complete entirety of their redeemed humanity. And in truth, in truth and faithfulness to the word, very reminiscent and very interesting, is a parallel of John 4.24, worshipping God in spirit and truth. Nothing new. Same thing that Joshua is telling them. Same thing that God is telling them. It seems that the charge that Joshua lays against them, he's he's acting somewhat like an attorney, standing up for God, is that really Israel has not served God in the way God desires and has fallen short. Even in Egypt, they followed other gods, but God heard their cries. That's what he says in verse 7. Don't commit idolatry. But when they cry out, God hears them. He rescues them. Now they're entering a land in which religious choices have to be made. What will they do? Will they worship the gods of the Canaanites in whom this land is filled? Or will they worship God? So in verse 15, we find an interesting dilemma. In the land of Canaan, you have all sorts of gods to choose from. You could go one way or the other, one choice or another, and really no choice would be irrelevant in the Canaanites' mind because at some level or some degree of problem that somebody has, they just turn to that particular God that would fit the particular circumstance. The God of prosperity, we need to be prosperous, we'll turn to him. The God of life, we'll turn to him. The Canaanites had all sorts of different gods, So, you're going into a land where choosing... The Almighty God, one choice would be strange. To have claim to one God, an ultimate authority, and discard the rest of those deities would seem crazy. Why wouldn't you want to turn to the God of prosperity to need His help? One God is, is, is that enough? Basically, Joshua recalls Israel's history and then asks Israel to make the choice to follow God because of who God is and what He's done. He is enough. He is the ultimate authority. He is the Almighty One. And so, he asks this question, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, in verse 15, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, that were on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. That might seem crazy to you, but it's not crazy because of who God is and what he's done. Remember who God is. Then we find the principal text for this morning. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, it's a twofold demand for continued, obedient discipleship set in the context of the family. First, he says, Me. As for me, I'll serve the Lord. Joshua assigns obedience first to himself, and then, he says, my house. Joshua makes the conscious decision for his house to follow God as the federal head. The head of his household before God. And what what is me and my house, what are they to do? He says, serve the Lord. And the idea behind that word serve is to serve as a subject, or to labor as a servant, or to serve God sacrificially as if you were a Levite priest. And so what he's doing is he's saying that I and my house, me and my house, we're going to perform the highest act of religion that we possibly can in serving God and worshiping God. The covenant renewal begins individually, me, and then by way of the family unit, my house. And all of that tends towards family reformation. It surrounds the family's commitment, led by the head of the family to serve God. It surrounds covenanting with God as a family, unlike the heathen nations. That's what he's making the contrast with. We're going to serve, serve God. It's by necessity that family reformation take place to serve God as God would be served. And it's by a choice that such family reformation is set in place and set in motion. And that's what we concentrate on. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. In contrast to them going into this land and all of the gods and all of the things that they could serve, instead, Joshua makes the commitment that he's going to follow God And he makes the commitment that his house is going to follow God, serve God. Now, before we look particularly at drawing out a doctrine from the text, we have to deal with a couple of things here. One is, what does it mean to serve God? Because it's very important. Theologically, it's rather a simple question to answer. The Hebrew idea behind Joshua's statement is to serve, as I said, as a Levitical priest with sacrifice or worship God in that way. So the idea behind it is to serve by sacrifice or worship. The word serve is used nine times in this chapter, over and over again. Joshua is making a conscious decision to worship God To serve him, not serve idols. The Israelites have to make that choice as well. Will they worship and bow down to the gods of the Canaanites or not? Will they worship God instead? Will they serve him? Serving God encapsulates the idea that this is the highest form of religious worship that can be accomplished. Let me give you a little survey, a biblical survey of a a number of verses utilizing this idea, serves. Exodus, chapter 7, in verse 16. People were in bondage. God calls them out. Why? What's the purpose of God removing them from Egypt? You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. In recapsulating the Ten Commandments, in recapsulating the the statutes and commandments of the people. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name. Samuel, in his departure in 1 Samuel 12.24 says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Psalm 100 in verse 2 says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Serving is worshipping. Matthew chapter 4 in verse 10, And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Colossians chapter 3 in verse 24 Paul says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 and verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Service is worship. And worship is is done both privately, by the family, and publicly, as we come together to worship corporately. Joshua is telling us, the Spirit of God is telling us, that family worship is critically important in the economy of God's saving work. Joshua did not say, we as a nation will serve God, or all of us as individuals shall serve God. Instead, he spoke covenantally. He spoke concerning the family. And as the federal head of his family, he first turned to his own life as to whether or not he was going to serve God. And then to his responsibility in leading his family. His family would be as sanctified or led to serve and worship God only so far as Joshua was going to do that. As much as Joshua was going to lead and worship and serve God, so his family would. As for me, the federal head, and my house, those I lead, we're going to serve God. Now, God designed the family to be the foundational covenant unit. This is where everything begins. Is God interested in individuals? Yes. But he's interested in individuals in the context of the family. Because that's the unit that is covenantally set in God's history of salvation, even to now. Joshua laid the service and worship of God first on himself and on his family, and so desired that all the families of the tribes would do so as well. Like me, you should follow along. As for me and my house, we're worshiping God. We're serving God. We're not serving the idols. God has so set up the family that it remains as a catalyst to change and reformation, both in society and the church. From the time that God placed Adam and Eve as a family unit in the garden, and all Adam's family or posterity fell with him, So God has continued to use the covenantal organization of the family all through salvation history. It is incontestable that God worked through families through Israel's salvation history. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, up to this point. Right up to the coming of Christ, who is the fullness of the promise and covenant made with Abraham, as Zacharias and Mary say in Luke chapter 1, that he has blessed and fulfilled the promise made to Abraham. Both of them say that in Luke 1. And the book of Acts demonstrates that God works through families. Every instance that Luke records in Acts surrounding the salvation of groups of people revolve around something happening with families or even calling into question what will happen now as a result of an individual's salvation and their family. What do you do with an Ethiopian eunuch who's part of the royal court who gets saved? It's part of the question that's left there that we're wondering about in the book of Acts. And because we see all through through the whole book of Acts that households are being saved. And households are coming into contact with covenant. The jailer's household, Cornelius's household, Lydia's household. All of these households, they're ushered into the church through covenant signs, both by circumcision and household baptisms. God has never and will never stop utilizing the foundational covenant unit of the family in his saving acts. Uh, until, of course, we go to glory. What is he after? Malachi says he's after godly seed. That happens in families. The family sets the environment that gives opportunity to the continual teaching of the word and for prayer and supplication in serving God. That's where it starts. Just think about the Ten Commandments and who they're addressed to. Who are the Ten Commandments addressed to? Are they addressed to the nation of Israel? Not actually. They're addressed To covenant heads. To federal heads of their family. Listen to, like for instance, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, about the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor. Well, who's you? And do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you, whoever you is, shall not do any work. You, now ready? Or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, you or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. The commandments are written to the federal heads of households, the Joshua's, who say, I and my family will serve God. The family is a small government. It's structured with a head, a husband, a wife, and children with respective roles the family is a small church it's run like a little church which is why elders first must rule their homes before they can rule the church which is 1st Timothy 3 and Titus 1 if they're unable to get family worship accomplished in their home they have no right in leading the worship in the church the family is a little economic center wait until we get to the role of the wife in Proverbs 31, and all of the things that she does. Training of the family as responsible stewards of what God has given them is the task of the heads of households. As the family serves God in its capacity of familial worship and service, all other organizations... All other social organizations, things that are out there, not just in here in the family, will change if the family unit changes. Imagine if every family in America were Christian, and every family in America were worshipping God in their families, and every family in America followed and served God, how that would change the way America is. If the family is destroyed, society begins to crumble and will crumble, and in America it is crumbling. the family is restored in serving God, society will prosper. Joshua says, if you want to prosper in the land that God has given you, serve God and not idols. Covenant as a family with God. Serve Him and you'll be blessed. So, here's the doctrine at this point. Family worship is biblically necessary to serve God. You've got to have it. God is to be worshipped by all, which includes the family. Psalm 66 and verse 4. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. Family worship is the joint worship rendered to God by all the members of one household. That's family worship. Family worship, again, is the joint worship rendered to God by all the members of one household. Families have always worshipped God. Genesis 18 and verse 19 with Abraham. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. See, Abraham, his duty is to command his children and his household and teach them the way of the Lord that they might do righteousness. The religious care of the family can be seen in Job. Job chapter 1 and verse 5. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. He regularly oversaw the religious well-being of his family. And if you read through chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Job and see how his family interacted with one another, they had a very happy disposition. Brothers and sisters feasting together, having a time together. Family worship always demonstrates that. Joshua, 24 and 15, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We will worship God together. Jesus also had a familial relationship with his disciples. He, had, he was one who had no place to lay his head. He didn't have any place that he lived and dwelt in particular. And yet, he taught the scriptures to them everywhere they went. They had a relationship of the master and servant, a household relationship. And he said in Matthew 12.50, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. And so he is teaching his disciples. In Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house. All of his house. He led his house. Lois and Eunice. In Second Timothy 1 5, influences Timothy with the scriptures that would mold him for the rest of his life and utterly save him becomes a pastor. Household worship. It's impossible to make the argument that the family unit should not worship God if God expects worship from all. Service to God, worship of God, is not done just once a week. Sundays, service to God, to use Job's description, is continual what Joshua is talking about. And it's no wonder that God singles Job out as one who fears God, worships him, and shuns evil. The very thing Joshua tells the Israelites to do. Serve God and forsake idols. All the time. Not just on Sundays. Family worship will induce the reformation of the family. And reformation has to begin with a single person before it can affect the family. And that's with the head of the household. Joshua, as the federal head or God-appointed representative of his family, was first affected by following and serving God. That's what he did first. Me, I will serve. Only by his action to serve God can he, with any great solemnity at all, cause his family to joyfully serve God as well. It really only takes one obedient individual to effect reformation. It's always how it's sort of happened throughout the history of the church and the history of Israel. One preserver, one salty person, one person who's trying to preserve the truth will affect others in some way. And the federal head of the family, the father or the husband, should lead their families to godly reform. That's what Joshua is saying. Unless for some reason the head of the household is an ungodly man, maybe a a wife might be married to someone who is not saved, but the federal head, of which we will talk more about next week, specifically about him, should lead the family in reformation. God has given the federal headship to the man. The man is over the woman. He's over his family. He is the instructor of his family. You know, there's no passage in Scripture anywhere that says anything even remotely, you know, if he can't teach his family, then he should abdicate his duties to his wife or to somebody else. There's no place in Scripture that says that. Somebody says, well, you know, I married my wife and she's much smarter than I am. She's, she's been saved for 20 years. I've only been saved one year. And you're telling me that God expects me to to serve and worship in my, in my family and my wife? No, yes. It's exactly what God is saying. God says that you, as the federal head, are the one who leads and serves and worships God and leads his family to do so. Observation shows that families which have no household worship are usually at a low degree in spiritual things. Families that perform religious worship, maybe even in a cold manner or a lazy manner, are little affected by it and the means of grace. They are. You could see it. And family worship has a direct and manifest tendency to make religion a matter of everyday interest. If the federal head of the family is on his family to think about spiritual things, then those are the things that they'll be thinking about. And so it makes religion of great interest in the family. The things of God should be the predominant influence in any Christian home. That's why family worship is necessary for family reformation. Now, in looking at this and applying it to us, this particular section, in terms of families, relatively easy. No less in our day, no less right now, we should be saying, what's the choice we're going to make? In our own day, there is as much distraction from family worship and the things of God as in Joshua's day, or even more so. We have all sorts of things that distract us. It's much easier to choose to replace family worship with something carnal than it is to just go in, have family worship, because family worship's hard. It's easier to watch TV or to plug in a video than to sit around the dinner table and worship God. It is. Much easier to let R.C. Sproul, you know, on the television, we plug in a video and say, watch that, than sitting down and having to have something that you have to say or prepare or pray or do something. You know, that's why dinner time, even in the history of American culture, was always an important time. The family comes together at dinner time To do something together, even in the Beaver days, you know, they were sitting around the dinner table talking. Well, dinner time is obviously an opportune time where all the family comes together. And historically, throughout the history of the church, it's always been the most opportune time to be able to do something for family worship. But prudence should dictate the best time. If dinner time is the best time, then, then use dinner time. Maybe it's early in the morning. Could be early in the morning. But whatever time, there has to be a time when the family comes together to be taught and to pray. But, we have to make that choice as well. Just like Joshua was telling the Israelites. Will we serve the gods of the land, or will we enact family worship and serve God with our families? You've got to think about what what rules or influences our family. You know, sit down And make a list. What most influences our family? If you were to give an account right now before God for your family, would God be pleased with your piety and the piety of your household? What influences have you allowed into the home? And what influences need to be taken out of the home? Does your family have a regular and stable feeling of coming together to pray or to worship and serve God? Or don't they? Is it hit and miss? Is it regular? Is it stable? Would your family say that your house is well ordered? Imagine the day of judgment when the individuals of the house are judged for their family religion. Dad, I just never had a feeling of stability with family worship. You just weren't leading us. We ought to heartily examine ourselves in light of the reality that God not only desires family worship, but commands family worship through these various saintly examples that we've read. Easily, we could go into each one of them and look at all the things that they did and have sermons specifically on each one of those passages, and that was just a brief overview. There are lots more. But if we neglect such worship, aren't we neglecting what God has specifically said in His Word and the way that we're supposed to serve Him? We claim to be a Reformed church, but our church functions as a result of the piety of the family and the religious attitude of its members, which is made of individual families. If those families are negligent in the things that God desires of them, what kind of effect will our families have on the church and what kind of piety will other people see outside and looking at us? Is your family a model of a little government rightly enacted? Is it a little church? Is it a little economic center? Good stewards with the things that God has given us to do? What kind of impact will your family have on the church, on society, on the world? The reformation of the church depends on the reformation of the family. And the reformation of the family is more than simply saying a prayer at mealtime. can't be just that. Worship is more than uttering a prayer before you eat spaghetti. That's not family worship. Federal heads of their families must realize the great influence that God has given them over their families. And the effects of our personal piety and our resolve for worship and service of God the members of the house and the children of the house are eternally beneficial. If your family is more influenced by a pessimistic attitude toward life than it is your religious piety, what is modeling them? TV programs? Maybe that's modeling them. What will their resolve be later in life? When children grow up and they leave the house, are they going to wonder how society is going to treat them as a result of being Christian and following the Lord with their house? If they're more influenced by video games or television than religion, what greater influence do they have? The world is influencing them. If they're more influenced by sports or recreation than family worship, what is going to shape them? You hear from Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does. Well, stupid does by what they see you do. That's where they're influenced. That's where your family is influenced and your children are influenced. The question is posed by Joshua to us as families. What will we do? Excuses abound about time and ability and basically those are just sinful ways of shucking the responsibility. Christ will abhor our non-interest in our family. It's not, but as for me, I will serve the Lord. It's not that. And then pointing the finger to somebody else and saying, you have to say the same thing. No. You can't just hope that the rest of your family is going to do that as well. He says, but as for me and my house, Christ desires families to be reformed by his word. And it's imperative as covenant families, to serve him now as so much in the day of Joshua. Turning to distractions will distract us from the things that are most important. And service to Christ never changes. Never changes ever. Even more so now than we that we have the completion and the fullness of his work seen in the pages of Scripture for us. And the direct influence of his Spirit sent from the very throne of the exalted Messiah. How? If he is going to give us the power to accomplish it, how can we neglect and throw away the means by which God will reform us and ready us for his service as a family? He's ready to pour out his blessings upon families. He is. He says it over and over and over. He promises you, he tells you, my desire for you is to have godly seed. But that's where you have to stop and you have to examine your family. If you want a reformation family. If you want a reformed family, your family must be engaged in service to God. Tired from a long day, the children have been misbehaving, work was atrocious, keeping to the house might have been more particularly hard today, uh, with extra work. It's very easy to blow off family worship, the most important part of the day. Let's just say it, and let's get over it. Family worship is hard. God made life difficult. Our fallen natures don't like family worship. It doesn't like reading the Word. It doesn't like praying. And it's hard, and it's monotonous, and it gets old. Okay, so now we say all of that. God makes things difficult, and fallen minds and bodies and religion don't mix. They just don't. But this is where we have to mortify the flesh, and we have to submit to the Spirit and follow His directives for us, and we have to be resolved. This is what Joshua says. That's my resolution. But me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's his resolve. We have to examine our faithfulness to Christ in this. Take today, take today and evaluate and examine how well you guard your family against the influences of Canaan's other gods. So to speak. Unless, of course... As Joshua said, it seems evil to you. Let's pray together. Mighty Lord, you have given us your word that directs us to serve, to worship you, To follow after you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, in our families, not simply as individuals, me and my house. Where we fall exceedingly short in this, O God, for our continual, as Job did, our daily evening and morning sacrifices that we bring, pray that you would help us, O God, resurrect the power that we need stir us up that we might worship you as a family should. Let us be reminded it is more important for family worship than to see the evening news. Let not the world, the gods of Canaan, crowd out that which we should be accomplishing before you. Help us, O God, to worship you as we should, as families, as covenantal units that you have Organize and that you work your salvation and power through. We ask, O oh God, for your help in this. Especially send your Spirit. We need more of your Spirit that we might walk before you in this. And help us as we consider over these next few weeks, not only the family as we have today briefly, but also the husband, the wife, and the children, and their roles before you, that we might, O oh Lord, discover the Reformed family. We pray, O Lord, with all of these things that you would bless us and help us. We ask it all to be blessed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, 3730, by fax at 780 468 1096, or by mail at 4710 37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T 6 L 3 T 5.